0: In the rapidly changing world, healthcare needs are constantly evolving and clinicians need to find new ways to deliver care. And often the best way to do that is by looking back. Without Marie Curie, there would be no pioneering improvements to medical imaging today. If Edward Jenner didn't inoculate a 13 year old with cowpox, there wouldn't even be a space for Professor Ian Fraser's cervical cancer vaccine. Our clinicians are standing on the shoulders of those who came before them, learning, growing and advancing. Hindsight isn't 2020, it's our future. As the saying goes, Teamwork makes the dream work, and there's no truer place that that is on display than in healthcare. Working across professions, boundaries, and care settings, these services are partnering with consumers and jurisdictions to innovate care that is truly patient-centered. Sarah Hamilton and Tom Meehan joined us to share how the power of three HHSs are combining to provide allied health brief therapies for the Westmorton Metro South and Darling Downs communities.
1: My part today is to introduce you to the model and why we came up with this model. And so I wanted to start with some of the drivers. So why do we need to look at three therapies clinics for allied health? What we were doing is in 2017 we'd carried out a project looking at the scope practice of allied health professionals working in adult mental health services And we've been looking at areas to increase the use of therapies by allied health professionals. At the same time, there's a lot of work going on to look at the increased pressure at EDs. And Sandra Garner's talk on QAS in terms of projects looking at how to take that pressure off ED, but also make it an experience that was a bit of outcomes for our consumers. A lot of those conversations were happening in 2017. And one of those things we're really grappling with when we looked at feedback from our consumers, families, and carers was around the repetitive process of assess and refer. So we did multiple things. We consulted with our consumers, carers and families. We looked at our data. So we looked at the journey of consumers who had more than one presentation to ED and what happened uh, with their journey across services in a 12-month period. And we saw a lot of points of transfer of care, but also a lot of cycling back into ED. And so we were looking at, in our current services, what could change to address some of those things. So the overall aim of the clinics was to make sure that we weren't trying to come up with something else that was just replicating current business, but we overall we wanted to look at improving the experience of those that present at our EDs with suicidal ideation and to also at the same time improve our transference of care and our partnerships with our community providers and also provide opportunity for our workforce to work to its full scope of practice. I want to give you a quick overview of some of the data that inform this. So this is data from 2016 to 2018. It shows you that 35% of our referrals into Addiction Mental Health Services, and that's around 50,000 people for 2018, come via ED, QPS and QAS. You can also see there that increasing trend over years, that demand at that front end of service is going up every year. In terms of what do those presentations look like, so this data shows you that of those referrals into addiction mental health services, just over 73% of them come under deliberate self-harm, substance use, anxiety distress and suicidal ideation. So when we're mapping who we're likely to see in these clinics, this gave us an idea of some of those presenting issues. The projects are collaborative. So this project was in partnership funded by the Allied Health Professionals Office Queensland and the Mental Health Alcohol and Drugs Branch under Connecting Care to Recovery 2016-21. And the majority of the funding was provided by these services. So Darling Downs, West Morton and Metro South. And in that partnership and our community scoping, we did a lot of work with our primary health networks and we wanted to make sure the clinics were in the community rather than being in a more clinical setting. So for the Ipswich Clinic, it was based at the Floresco Centre, which is an aftercare initiative, which is a one-stop shop for mental health consumers. And we also had one in Darling Down, so there was a Floresco at that time operating in Toowoomba. For Metro South, the clinic is based at Bayside. We didn't have the luxury of a Fresco centre, Uh, and in this case we used a community health clinic. And this was from feedback from consumers, carers and families that they would like to receive care in a community setting. So just an overview before I pass over to Tom to talk about the outcomes of this project. What we developed in terms of the model of service is that we weren't replicating anything else that was already provided we were complementing current services. And in that, we made sure that we had clinical governance operating procedures in place to support that. Just in case I forget, so for the scope of this project, and it was evaluated comprehensively in 2019, the clinics were mainly driven by allied health. But from the beginning, we had nursing and medicine involved in the development of these clinics. And now post-evaluation, we have nursing and medicine providing care in the clinics as well. In terms of criteria to meet eligibility, it was really that referral in from being assessed in ED. When we looked at how many sessions would be required, what we found is that up to six sessions was all that was majority was needed, and Tom will talk about that some more. But from the very first time they're seen in the clinic, which is within 72 hours of the referral, we're setting up a warm transfer of care with one of our um, providers in the community. And this is based on some of the research we did on and feedback from consumers that we were doing cold transfers of care and people were faced with especially in rural settings long waiting lists not being able to afford to get payment to access the service or not feeling like they clearly understood what they're going to be able to receive so that warm transfer of care is really important and then while they are in the clinic they are still supported under our acute care teams and via MH call so I will pass over to Tom to talk more about the evaluation thank you
2: Thanks very much, Sarah. My role in this project was to evaluate the initiative and to determine how effective it was. And there was a number of ways that we could have evaluated this program. You'll be sitting there in the audience saying, why didn't we do a clinically controlled trial? Why didn't we do different types of approaches in terms of evaluation? But what we were trying to do was reach some kind of compromise between the burden placed on the clinicians to collect data and on the patients to complete questionnaires So you're distressed, you're in ED, and you're sent to the clinic, so the last thing you want to do is give three quarters of an hour filling out questionnaires, particularly if you're suicidal and highly distressed. So we decided to reach some kind of a compromise between the burden placed on the clinicians and on the consumers And we came up with this pre-test, post-test type of measures. So one of the measures in here is the DAS21. And we were trying to say to the staff, let's try and do something that's useful to you as a clinician. If you're going to complete this measure, let's try and use the data from the measure to direct clinical decision-making. So in other words, determine how ill the person is. The DAS, as you know, very simple instrument, 21 items, measure three different areas, stress, anxiety, and depression. So it's quite interesting to be able to get that from a clinician's point of view. And we thought they were some of the things that a clinician working with the clients could address. There's no point trying to measure psychosis because you won't address psychosis in three or four sessions. But we think you can address anxiety and stress and probably depression. So just moving along, over a six-month period when the program commenced, we got 149 consumers referred to the clinics and of those, eight declined to go. They said they weren't interested in attending the clinic. 106 attended the clinic within three working days of being referred. So instead of having to wait three months to see a psychologist in the community, they were able to be there in 24, 48, in within three working days. And 86 had previous contact with mental health, but 42% had no previous contact with mental health services. There were just new people who had walked in the door into ED, asking to have some help for the distress. And then 64 of those completed all planned sessions which between one and five. The general run was three sessions, three one-hour sessions, and that was the run at the modal number. So in terms of the DAS, what we see there is that there were significant changes on all of the DAS subscales, depression, stress, and anxiety, and the effect size, which is quite large for these measures down along. The, the outcomes rating scale is a smarter measure completed by the client, And it talks to how well the sessions met the needs of the client. And as we can see there, the effect size is quite large. Anything above 0.8 is large in terms of effect size. So what did we do then over this period of time? Suicidal thoughts in the last week was what we're trying to address. How intent had the person either on intent or frequency of suicidal thoughts, but we just have intents here. And pre-going to the clinic, 34% of people felt that their suicidal thoughts or self-harm was very intense. But at the end of three sessions, 9% was all. And they were referred on for extra help or extra care through the ACT team. So in the three months prior to the clinic, 177 presentations to ED by 143 consumers that we followed. And we followed those consumers for three months after the clinic. And what we found was that they only had 26 presentations to ED by 18 of those consumers. So the intervention was very effective in keeping people out of ED. Now, we're not saying you shouldn't go to ED if you need to be in ED. We're not trying to stop people from going into ED. So the aim of this is not to prevent people from going to ED. But what it's trying to do is say, if you're in ED and you're not getting any treatment or care, we need to be able to provide something in the community for you to stop this revolving door of into ED and back to the community and back into ED. So that's what we tried to do there. And we did have some inpatient admissions, so some of the people who turned up in the clinic had deteriorated over that 48-hour period. They were quite suicidal, high suicidal intent, and were at high suicidal risk, and the clinicians in the clinic made a decision to have those people admitted to the inpatient unit. So From the satisfaction, we looked at consumer satisfaction with this, they felt that there was an importance of being respected, listened to, and validated. A lot of time, people who come into ED with self-harming behavior know they're not going to get cured. But what they want is some validation from staff to say, look, we accept and acknowledge that you're in distress, and we'll try and help you. But a lot of the people that we've interviewed tell us that they don't get that, that the ED is a very acute-focused environment, and that there's not good at looking after people with psychological distress. And we invalidate that psychological distress, but if we validated it and said, look, we know you're distressed, we're going to try and do something to help you, a lot of these people would go away feeling that they had some kind of a reasonable service from the ED. And then from the clinicians, there was increased capacity for the clinicians to utilize the therapeutic skills. So having a psychologist driving around the community, treating people as a case manager, they didn't feel that that was satisfying. That was de-skilling them. But sitting in a clinic, seeing a person face-to-face for an hour, they felt a lot more skilled and a lot more, if you like, respected for their skills. And we are just moved along here then to some of the conclusions. With one minute to go, that's very good. So the clinicians, the clinics then are effective in keeping people safe. I think that's one of the issues in it. None of the people who attended the clinic committed suicide in the three months after attending the clinic. And I was just talking to Sarah earlier on, since we did this study, about 7,800 people have now gone through these clinics, and none of them have committed suicide, even though when they come into the clinic, they're highly suicidal. That's why they get to the clinic. They don't get there unless they're suicidal. So the consumer satisfaction is high. There's an enhanced transition between public mental health services and primary health care. So we work very closely with the GPs, referring people back to a GP after four sessions for a mental health plan, if that's what's needed. And then we have reduced emergency presentations, increased workforce capacity to address suicidal ideation. So these people who work with these individuals in the clinic feel that they have gained really highly tuned skills in managing suicidal ideation. And we are, in a way, creating tomorrow's workforce, increasing capacity of mental health clinicians to work to their professional scope of practice. So instead of a person coming into ED, getting assessed and referred, assessed and referred, assessed and referred, we're now trying to break that assessment and referral mentality that's developed, and we're trying to provide some kind of intervention that will help that person to break that cycle. And then training pathway for registrars. Originally, when we set up these program, some of the senior psychiatrists were talking about the cost, which we do need to look at. We haven't done a cost analysis of this, but they were talking about the cost and providing very intensive treatment to a small group of people. But now they realize that this is a training pathway for registrars, and they have seen some value in this as well. So they've come on board with it. And finally... I uh, would just like to thank the people that were involved in all of this and the different people on the border. So I will leave it there. There is a final report that we did for Queensland Health, and this has gone up on quips, I believe. So if people want to see more about the project, understand how to set up, we did a, a final report, and there's a lot of detail in that about the outcome measures and the program itself.
0: As always, thank you for listening to our podcast and taking the time to learn about the wonderful work of Queensland's frontline clinicians. To continue the conversation, head on over to Facebook and let us know of any pockets of excellence you think deserve to be showcased. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Clinical Excellence Queensland.